Hello. Welcome to Mayday, your flight podcast about everything you don't want to happen on your plane. I'm your host, Caroline Miller, and today we are getting into the story of Alaska Airlines Flight 261. Uh, This flight will make you want to flip a table or scream into a pillow until your face turns purple or just pass out from rage. I can't do any of those things because I'm hosting a podcast right now, so please do so on my behalf whenever you want to. My my dad, a rather unshakable man, said that this crash freaked him out when it happened, and the only other plane crash that made him say that was Lockerbie's, so it says a lot about how bad things are about to get. Uh, with me today on this ride of frustration, terror, and sadness is Justin Exposito. Hi, Justin! Hello. I've never passed out from rage. Is that something you do often? One time I got so mad that my vision got spotty, but I didn't actually pass out. Mm. That's fair. I, I get the spotty vision, but I think it's just because I'm pre-diabetic. <laughs> there might be other factors at play. Maybe. Um, <laughs> so, Justin, uh, you 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 live in the area. You live in the SeaTac area. Have you ever mm-hmm. flown Alaska? I exclusively fly Alaska when I go back to Florida, so I'm about to shit my pants. Yes, you are. Sorry, but also... Not sorry, because Alaska right. deserves to get their dirty laundry aired. So, ready to just dive into it, rip off the Band-Aid? Yes. All right. <clears throat> Alaska Airlines Flight 261 was a regularly scheduled international passenger flight from Puerto Vallarta in Jalisco, Mexico, to Seattle, Washington, with a stopover in San Francisco International Airport in California. The accident aircraft was an eight-year-old McDonnell Douglas MD-83 that had accumulated around 26,500 flight hours, and it had precisely 14,315 flight cycles before the crash. It's very important to note here that the plane had been in the care of Alaska Airlines the entire time. It never belonged to another airline. The maintenance and repair of this plane was only Alaska's responsibility for its entire lifespan. The cockpit crew of this flight was a pair of very, very experienced pilots. We had Captain Ted Thompson. He had nearly 18,000 flight hours under his belt by the age of 53. Uh, And he was 53 at the time of the flight. I realized when I was saying it that that made us on the key wasn't. But anyway, he's 53 at the time. Captain Thompson had been flying for Alaska for 18 years. And his first officer, 57-year-old Bill Tansky, had 8,140 flight hours, and he had been flying for Alaska for 15 years. Both of them were also former military pilots, and they had served in the U.S. Air Force and the U.S. Navy, respectively. They were both from Seattle, and all three flight attendants on board were also based in Seattle, so all these people are on their way home, and I'm sure that they're looking forward to getting there. In addition to the flight attendants, 47 of the 83 passengers on board Alaska 261 were bound for Seattle, 30 were going to San Francisco, 3 were going to Eugene, Oregon, and 3 were headed for Fairbanks, Alaska. All of the passengers were Americans except for one British passenger and one Mexican passenger. Nearly half of the passengers were actually employees or associates of Alaska Airlines and its sister carriers which made the fate of this flight particularly devastating for Alaska Airlines and its affiliates. I have, like, something stuck in my throat. It's probably rage. It's a frog. (laughs) It's a frog. 
It's a frog. It's a frog of anger about what's about to happen. Rage frog. It's a. Did you say it's a hate frog? I said rage frog. A rage frog. It is a rage frog. I have a rage frog in my throat, and it's about to get real loud. Okay, so at 1.37 Pacific Standard Time, Alaska Airlines Flight 261 took off from Licenciado. Let me try that again. You got it. Sound it out. Gustavo Diaz Ordaz International Airport in Puerto Vallarta. Probably said that wrong. I did my best. I'm very sorry. I practiced and I don't think it came through, but oh well. It climbed to (laughs) its intended cruising altitude of 31,000 feet. And for the first two hours of the flight, everything was totally normal. Nothing weird was happening. They had no reason to think that anything was going to go wrong. But At around 3.49 p.m., both pilots started to notice issues with the horizontal stabilizer. Notably, the horizontal stabilizer was just jammed. It wasn't moving. Uh, And so, What does that mean? I'm I'm about to explain. It's kind of... (laughs) No, it's okay. (laughs) So for those of you who are not driving, and for those of you who don't know off the top of your head what a horizontal stabilizer looks like on an MD-80 series plane... Take a moment to Google an MD-80 plane, and you're going to see that unlike the more common Boeing and Airbus commercial planes that we fly today, uh, the MD-80 series of planes, they have a horizontal, not vertical stabilizer on the tail of the plane. So it kind of looks like the plane has a whale tail that's pushing up towards the sky, but the fin is totally parallel to the ground. That's the best way I can think of to describe it, is it's like a whale tail, and the fins on the tail are the horizontal stabilizer. And this part of the plane, the horizontal stabilizer, is absolutely critical in controlling the direction of the plane up, down, left, right, like everything. If you can't control your horizontal stabilizer on an MD-80, you're going to have a hellish time on that plane, and you probably won't be able to control it at all. So noticing that the horizontal stabilizer was, in fact, not stabilizing, the pilots immediately got in touch with both maintenance at the LA International Airport and the Seattle-Tacoma, aka SeaTac, uh, maintenance facilities. And the pilots essentially said, hey, our plane is very difficult to control. We think that the horizontal stabilizer is jammed. We've tried to fix it with both trim systems and just nothing is working. Uh, The only way we're controlling the plane is we have to pull on the yokes on our control panel with a crazy amount of force in order to control it at all. And so at this point, the pilots are literally physically fighting the plane to keep it under control. And so due to the circumstances, the pilots and Alaska Airlines, the the Alaska Airlines dispatcher on the ground, that is, uh, they got into a debate on whether or not to divert to L.A. or to continue to San Francisco as planned. The Alaska Airlines ground dispatcher uh, was trying to convince the pilots to keep going to San Francisco as planned, despite the fact that they couldn't control their plane, because he said that the diversion to L.A. would disrupt the, quote, flow of the overall flight schedule and really what that means is he had the airline's interests in mind first and not necessarily the plane's interests but the pilots said you know what no i'm going to ignore you this plane is just messed up we can't control it and so we're just going to land as soon as possible for the safety of our passengers because these pilots are smart and with that they were set up to divert to la And hey, you know, get this, 20 minutes later, 
the pilots were successfully able to unjam the horizontal stabilizer. So they're like, that sounds good, right? Like they're diverted. It's unjammed. Things, you know, sounds good, right? I mean, I'm tempted to say yes, but your eyes are telling me no. <laughs> My eyes betray me. Uh, yes, things are about to just get much, much worse. Uh, because you see, as soon as the horizontal stabilizer got unjammed, that's when the really scary part of this flight happens. Because basically, they unjam the horizontal stabilizer and something happens and the horizontal stabilizer just goes totally rogue. It is uncontrollable and it immediately goes into a position that forces the plane into a basically vertical nosedive. And so they drop 10,000 feet. Justin is raising his hand. Yes. I have a question. How come all of these flights end up in nosedives? <laughs> <laughs> because this podcast is called Mayday and not coming in for landing. Okay. <laughs> That's super fair. Like, I just, I feel like, so I've been on, this is what, the fourth or fifth time I've been on. And I feel like every emergency is either nosedive or plane disassembles in the sky are those the only two options of crashing it's either down or exp or or boom down or boom you know i'd say most of the time most of the time that's probably true most of the time there's either a nosedive that ends in a crash or there's like a bombing or explosion or like China Airlines 611. We're just peeling apart. apart. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It just peeled apart. Um, the only exception I could think of off the top of my head is Air France 447. And Air ah. France 447 did the opposite where they were tilted up so much that they just stalled and the plane fell from the sky. But the nose was actually pointed up like, almost vertical. Yeah. Uh. And yeah, that... Ugh. That flight also gives me nightmares. Uh, so, yeah, now that you mention it, most of them either just go into a nosedive like Alaska or they blow up or rip apart for one reason or another. That's comforting. Okay, so they go into a freefall nosedive. Yes, they go into a nosedive because the horizontal stabilizer has gone rogue and it's forced the plane into this position. So they drop nearly 10,000 feet in around 90 seconds. And despite the chaos, Captain Thompson and First Officer Tansky, they were able, through their immense skills, they were able to regain control of the plane by pulling on their controls. Like, they were pulling the yoke up as hard as they could. And they were each using about 140 pounds of manual force on their controls. And so, again, they continued to physically fight the plane. Mm -hmm. And Captain Thompson... He gets in contact with air traffic control at LAX, and he explains their increasingly dire situation, and he restated his intention to divert to LA, and air traffic control asks, you know, do you want to descend to a lower altitude now? I mean, even lower than you already are after your nosedive, and he responded with, quote, I need to get down to about 10 change my configuration, make sure I can control the jet, and I'd like to do that out here over the bay, if I may. So he says, I'd like to do that out here over the bay, if I right. may. Number one, he is exceedingly professional throughout this entire time. This is a bow tie man, for sure. This is this is a bow tie man in every sense of the word. He is <laughs> a, he's a legend. So, so he says... Why, why do you think, if you, like, what's your guess as to why he asked to 
do all of this over the bay? My guess is twofold. One, fewer planes, two, fewer people. Exactly. And that's exactly it. Like he at some level knew that there was probably a chance that they were this wasn't crash. going well. Yeah. Yeah. And he knew that if he does this over the ocean, at least if they crash, the only people that die will be them. And the fact that he had the wherewithal to A, acknowledge his possible imminent death, and after acknowledging that, B, thinking, how do I prevent damage to others? And C, still having the composure to say, I'd like to do this over the bay, if I may. Like, and still still asking, please. Yes, and still saying, <laughs> please. Like, he is superhuman. Like, the, both the of these com- pilots are superhuman. The composure of a champion. Quite literally, the composure of an absolute champion. I think I would just not even be speaking at this point if I was him. I'd probably just be crying and going catatonic, but he's a badass. Air traffic control responds, and they say, okay, yep, you can have clearance to go out over the bay. And then he also requests, the captain also requests a block altitude between 20,000 and 25,000 feet, meaning that he's requesting air traffic control to route other planes around him so that he can have more space in case something crazy happens again. And uh, so ATC says, yes, you can do that. No problem. We're going to give you a block altitude. And additionally... Air traffic control gets in contact with other planes in the area, and he says, hey, this plane, Alaska 261, they're in real bad shape. Can you see them? And a couple other pilots say, yes, I can see the plane. And air traffic control says, I need you to watch them, and I need you to keep me informed on what's happening to them just in case they're not able to communicate with me. And the other pilots are like, okay, I will watch out for this plane. So... Back on board Alaska 261, at 4.19 p.m., there is a series of four loud thumps, followed by a sickening, screeching, incredibly loud noise. And immediately after this sound, the plane was forced into a nosedive again. But this time, it's not only going straight down, it's also rolling really hard to the left. So, in other words, the plane is going in a spiral towards the ocean, and Captain Thompson immediately kicks into action, and he starts going through what's called an upset recovery maneuver, and he starts commanding his first officer to, quote, push and roll, push and roll, and that partially fixed the nosedive issue, so they come out of the nosedive a little bit, but at this point, they had a new problem, which was that they are upside down. They are flying completely upside down. And so then Captain Thompson said, quote, okay, we are inverted and now we got to get it. So then for the next 60 seconds, they continued to pull the plane out of the nosedive and they tried their absolute best to roll the plane back over. And Captain Thompson said, quote, push, 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 push the blue side up. Okay, now let's kick rudder, left rudder, left rudder. And then First Officer Tansky, who was physically displaced because they are literally hanging upside down. The only thing holding them in their seats is their seatbelts. He said, quote, I can't reach it. And to this, Captain Thompson, again, he didn't give up. And instead, he adapted. And he's like, OK, right rudder, right rudder. We got to get it over again. At least upside down, we're flying, end quote. Meanwhile, in the passenger cabin, 
people had either fallen out of their seats if they weren't buckled in and they were now lying helplessly on the ceiling of the plane, or they were tangled in their seat belts and they were hanging from their seats. And I imagine that it was just pure screaming and chaos because this diving and spinning motion went mm-hmm. on for nearly three minutes. Oh my God, that's an eternity. It's an eternity if you're a passenger on that plane and you're literally hanging upside down and you have that horrible dropping feeling in your stomach and you know, I'm going to die for three straight minutes. Also, nearly 10 children and infants on this plane. And I imagine that hearing your child scream out of absolute fear is like the worst sound in the world. And hearing 10 children scream while you are also realizing, oh my god, we're all going to die, I can only imagine. It's like the worst death that I can possibly imagine for these people. And so at 4.22, Alaska Airlines 261 approached the Pacific Ocean at a speed of hundreds of miles per hour. Both pilots were still fighting to control the plane until the very last second of their lives, And then in the very last second, Captain Thompson said a resigned quote, here we go. And First Officer Tansky yelled, quote, Mom, I love you. And then the, oh, I'm not going to cry. And then the plane smashed into the ocean and immediately disintegrated from the force of impact. And it killed all 88 people instantly. Just blunt force trauma at that point? Yeah. Yeah. They all died immediately of blunt force trauma afterwards. The vast majority of the bodies were not recovered in one piece, and so most people had to be identified through dental records, tattoos, and sometimes just bones. Um, It it was awful. The planes around Alaska 261 saw this. Oh my god, they had a fucking audience? Oh my god. Yes, there were at least two passenger planes that watched this plane crash into the ocean. That's awful yeah it is it's awful and and get this so the conversation between the last minutes of alaska 261 so captain thompson's final minutes Mm -hmm. also the audio from the planes around it the pilots of those planes and the audio from air traffic control those were all you know it's obviously recorded and after the crash it was all released to the public as well and so I have the recording, like the air traffic control recording of both the last things that Captain Thompson said to air traffic control, the things that the pilots that watched it crash said to air mm-hmm. traffic control and air traffic control's response. Just so you know, we do not hear them die. We don't hear the crash from 261, um, but we do hear the live reactions of the other pilots in the area watching it happen. So I'm going to play the audio from air traffic control um it's about three minutes but it's absolutely worth the listen pay attention in particular to how the controller reacts to the information that he's given when things turn sour it might seem very odd at first in fact it probably will seem very odd at first the things that he says uh but we'll discuss it afterward and i think it'll make more sense once we talk Mm -hmm. it through In a dive here. Alaska 261, Nathan, circle fit. Alaska 261, Nathan, sir. Now, we're at a 26,000 feet. We are in a vertical dive. Not a dive yet. 
but uh, we've lost vertical control of our airplane. Flapky 261, maintain block out to be by level 200, three by level 250. Last sounded like they're they're basically like we got eyes on him and then they just watched them and then yeah. i'm that's horrifying on so many levels so many levels um what really here's what strikes me the most is at the end when they're just like he hit the water it's like pretty it's pretty deadpan which i wasn't expecting i was expecting yeah. like more of like a visceral like oh shit or something but they're just like hmm like it, the it's yeah. very it, it's weirdly it's somber still but I, it's just different from what i was expecting yeah that's exactly what i thought when when i first listened to this recording i mean because you know when i was reading about it i read oh other pilots watched it go down and then there was this recording and i thought oh my gosh they're, they're probably gonna say something like Oh no! Oh no! He hit the water. Right. Oh, oh God, or something like that. But they said it just like that, very definitely. Like he hit the water, and I think the reason, I think the reason why they had to say it that way was because I think number one, I think they were probably in shock because I yeah. think this is probably the first time they have seen something like that. So I think number one, they're in shock. Number two, they still have their own planes full of people, so they're probably also a little unnerved like you know is there some sort of situation happening in this area that could happen to my plane as well mm -hmm. um and so i'm sure that they were probably thinking those things and also like they're at work and 
they're also talking with air traffic control the airwaves are just a lot happening um but i'm sure that when those pilots got home that night and i'm also sure that once they were like not communicating with air traffic control right they probably did say like oh my god i can't believe that just happened but when you're talking with control it has to be super sterile and mm-hmm. deadpan and also did you notice how the controller he like somebody told him yeah he's uh he's inverted and the controller goes okay very good uh and like did you notice that he said okay very good oh was he eating bugles was he not paying attention i think that he was like usually or just trying to keep keep it together like what's the yeah i think he was trying to keep it together because air traffic control is one of the most stressful jobs in basically the entire world and i think that there's certain phrases that you kind of fall back on as a controller and i think maybe this guy his habitual phrase was very good and so i think that he was in shock and he just started saying phrases that were familiar to him and i think very good was just a phrase that he was used to responding with because most of the time it is very good um but in this circumstance it was not um but the moment where I think you can hear the controller starting to uh, become really disturbed was when he just went, uh, okay. Because that is not something you say as a controller. Saying, uh, okay, is just not... Usually that's completely unacceptable. I think this controller was just so shocked that he just had a lapse and he was just like, uh... Okay. okay right yeah because what else are you gonna say so why did this have to happen alaska is known for at this point and still today being kind of like a homegrown hometown airline for the mm-hmm. pacific northwest that has a great safety record and people trust alaska airlines and so how in the world did this happen and the thing that will make you want to break something or scream or scream and break something is that this is literally the most preventable crash that I have ever heard of before ever this crash was so preventable that it's ridiculous and like I'll just say it up top most crashes have some degree of pilot error this crash had no pilot error the pilots were perfect they did nothing wrong they did the absolute best that you could possibly do in this situation and like those those men are heroes. The people who are solely responsible are the greedy leaders at Alaska Airlines at the time. The blood here is completely on their hands because they wanted to save money. And as a result of them wanting to save money, 88 people, including children and infants, died a horrible death. And now like that's a big statement to say to just be like, it's their fault, but when we get into the investigation, you'll see why I'm so insistent about this. So the technical heart of the failure that led to this crash became apparent very quickly after investigators recovered the wreckage from the water. Uh, they got about 87% of the wreckage back, uh, including the tail, which was the key to this investigation. So the horizontal stabilizer, the thing that jammed, and then it became unjammed, but then when it became unjammed, it was impossible to control. This stabilizer on the MD-80 at this point in time had a single point of failure. 
So if something happened to one spot in it, mm-hmm. everything would fall apart. And this goes against the Swiss cheese model and all the safety and planning that goes into putting together an aircraft. But the horizontal stabilizer on an MD-80 series plane had this Achilles heel, and it was something called a jack screw. And if a jack screw fails, the horizontal stabilizer fails, and the plane becomes uncontrollable, and then it crashes and everyone dies. And that's exactly what happened here. So I'm going to try to explain how the jack screw works as best I can. But that can be hard over a podcast because it's a visual thing. If you can, I'd recommend Googling a picture of a jack screw for an MD-80. So here's my best description. A jack screw, also known as an Acme screw, is essentially what it sounds like. It's a huge screw and it's made of steel. And it's about two feet tall, and it's about 1.5 inches thick, and that's 56 centimeters and 3.8 centimeters, respectively. It controls the movement of the horizontal stabilizer exclusively. It's the only thing that controls the movement of the horizontal stabilizer, which is an absolutely critical aspect of the plane. The jack screw depends on something called an acme nut to turn through, just like your regular screw turns through a nut at home on various appliances. Mm -hmm. But obviously an acme nut is plain-sized and it's huge. Um, Without the acme nut, the screw has, the jack screw has nothing to anchor itself to, and so it is completely uncontrollable and it'll just move around wildly and the horizontal stabilizer will just move around wildly and there's no hope. So it turns out, the Acme nut had disintegrated on Alaska 261. When the investigators pulled out the jack screw, they found these little filaments wrapped around it. And they're like, what's that? And then when they looked into it, they realized those tiny little threads were the remnants of the Acme nut, which is supposed to be this huge thing that holds it together. And so you might be thinking, hmm how did the acme nut disintegrate during the course of just one flight uh well it didn't when the flight took off that day the acme nut was already 90 percent disintegrated because the rest of it wore away mid-flight and it just completely disappeared and when it broke free that's when it became unjammed and then it was just flying around. The jack screw is floating. And then that's when everything happened. So, it. so it's not that they got control of the stabilizer. It's just that the thing, the little remnants that were left flew off the, flew out of the plane. Exactly. It, it snapped. I gotcha. And so right. that was that sound that happened. Those like four thumps. And then that really loud sound. That was the sound of the Acme nut completely breaking apart inside the tail and the really loud sound was the jack screw just flying off into some direction inside the tail and slamming into it. You know, this leaves a question. How did Alaska Airlines let such a critical piece, the Achilles heel of a plane, wear away into literal nothingness? Um, how did this happen? And the answer will, again, infuriate you. And it comes in a few parts. So part one of the jack screw failure Alaska Airlines, with the approval of the plan manufacturer, McDonnell Douglas, they switched to a shitty brand of lubricant for the jack screw, which is Aeroshell 33. Why did they do this? Because they wanted to save money. The recommended brand of lubricant for the jack screw, which is Mobile Grease 28, it worked great and it was safe, but Alaska just didn't feel like spending the extra money anymore. But here's the real kicker. When investigators 
examined the jack screw from the remnants of Alaska 261, they found that not only was there shitty lubricant involved in its safety record, but they found that when the plane crashed, there was no lubricant on the screw at all. And so that's what caused the Acme nut to disintegrate because it was just a ton of friction. So again, no lubricant, and the lubricant is required for the jack screw and the Acme nut to work together and keep the plane in the sky and keep the plane from careening out of control and crashing and having everyone die. So why was there no lubricant? This brings us to part two. They thought they could use spit. Probably. They <laughs> they were like, maintenance workers, just get your best loogies and then just... Hawk, hawk away, flight attendant. Hawk away. Hawk away. This is your responsibility. Hydrate. Uh, so part two of why the jack screw failed. Alaska Airlines purposefully expanded the amount of time allowed between plane maintenance windows. So this means that planes were now getting their big overhauls, like the big maintenance projects done. They were getting those done less often, leading to situations where problems went undiscovered and created significant issues. They did this not because they thought it was safe to do, it obviously wasn't. They cut back on maintenance of their planes to, again, save money oh but we're not done no 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 get this when the ntsb interviewed the mechanic who did the last lubrication of the plane in september of 1999 he said that he only spent one hour lubricating the jack screw due to airline pressures but the lubrication process for this plane should have taken four hours to complete not one four because it's important but even that even that one hour thing, it shouldn't have been enough to completely destroy the Acme nut between September of 1999 and January of 2000. So the NTSB kept digging to figure out what's the real cause of this. How did this go downhill so fast? And eventually, the NTSB found the sickening fact that the last check on the jack screw performed by Alaska Airlines in 1997 was actually fraudulent because Alaska oh, Airlines had purposefully fabricated tools that would not catch wear on the jack screw they did this so that they could say oh the jack screw's fine there's no wear on it it's all good and so they just didn't want to repair or replace the jack screw so they could save money so they literally just made up tools that they knew would never detect any deficiencies in the jack screw because they just didn't feel like replacing it despite the fact that it is the achilles heel of a plane they just didn't care they cared about money and that was it that's frustrating oh yeah i think what's what's particularly annoying is it'd be one thing if it was just like let's cut corners to save money well, not great but like i get it it's the let's actively falsify process like let's let it's the the active decision to be shady if it was passive shadiness that like ended up in a big oopsie, then at least you have like a degree of separation from the oopsie. But the like, let's create a system to skirt regulation. Like that's, that's fun. Yes. It's criminal. It's criminal. Actively making up stuff. Mm -hmm. Like you said, if, if it's a passive oopsie, that's one thing. And also, there's a lot of things that you can do to cut costs as an airline, I think. You can cut snacks or 
if you cut take away no if you cut my snacks i'll cut you <laughs> <laughs> give me my pretzels that i'm not having a good Damn i'm it. not having a three-year-old kick the back of my chair for five hours and not getting those freaking little rip-off checks mix things <laughs> and and only and only eating the little the little little toasts yeah, the best, oh, the best the part. The little baby toasts are the best yeah. part of any the little. Oh, what's the anyway? Sorry, go on. <laughs> yeah, no, no, I get it. I get it. Uh, so, so you might think, you know, they're not cutting the costs on snacks. They are cutting the costs on critical maintenance procedures and making stuff up so that they can falsify good reports. Uh, and you might think that such widespread blatant corruption in a major airline would be noticed by the maintenance employees who are being forced to do this. Uh, and this brings us to the final part, part three of why the Jack Screw failed. And in my opinion, this is the most infuriating part because when the news broke on January 31st of 2000 that Alaska Airlines 261 had crashed uh, later, they would find due to a Jack Screw failure, one man had a particularly horrible sinking feeling because this man knew that plane. This man had worked on that plane and his name was John Lyontine. And in 1997, uh, four, no, three years before the crash, John was a worker at the maintenance center for Alaska Airlines in Oakland, California. John was doing work on the plane that would later become the plane that crashed in Flight 261. He noticed that on this particular plane, the jack screw and the Acme nut looked pretty bad. And he recommended at the time that both the jack screw and the Acme nut of the plane should be replaced and that it should get extra lubricant because it posed a significant safety hazard. And he said this. He said, I think that if this goes unchecked, it could break and that'd mm. be bad. And then he was overruled by supervisors and his supervisor said, no, it's that's not necessary. It's fine. Like, that'd be really expensive. So, no. And if John had been taken seriously on that day, mm -hmm. the crash of Alaska 261 would never have happened. But Alaska wanted to save money. His supervisors were corrupt. And so he was ignored and 88 people died. But that's not the end because a lot of stuff happened between this day and the crash. So the next year, in 1998, John started to notice that his supervisors were submitting false reports to the FAA that said that they had done maintenance work, when in reality, they had not done the maintenance work at all. He confronted his supervisors and he said, hey, uh, why are you sending false reports to the FAA saying that we worked on planes when we actually didn't? And his supervisor said, shut up. But our boy John was like, I will not shut up. And John got in contact with the FAA and he said, hey, my supervisors are making up reports that they worked on planes, but they haven't. And the FAA said, uh-oh. And so they said, hey, can you secretly record some audio of your supervisors so oh you can get proof? And he's like, sure. So he did. And he got the proof that the FAA needed. And on December 22nd, 1998, federal officers raided the Alaska Airlines property in Oakland and seized the maintenance records. In response, Alaska Airlines fired John for trying to make the airline safe. Retaliation for a whistleblower. That's fun. Whistleblower silenced. Um, and then John sued Alaska Airlines for libel. Alaska Airlines gave him $500,000 
And he continued to go around and say, hey, guys, just so you know, Alaska Airlines is bad. Alaska Airlines is going to be unsafe. There's mm-hmm. going to be a fatal crash. Please listen to me. But nothing happened. Mm-hmm. No one listened. And then, then the uh, crash. And then the plane crashed. And he's like, I know exactly what plane that is. So then in the NTSB's final report, board member John Goglia said the following quote, different John, but all the Johns are good in this case. So he said, quote, This is a maintenance accident. Alaska Airlines' maintenance and inspection of its horizontal stabilizer activation system were poorly conceived and woefully executed. The failure was compounded by poor oversight. Had any of the managers, mechanics, inspectors, supervisors, or FAA overseers whose job it was to protect this mechanism done their job conscientiously, this accident cannot happen. The NTSB had has made several specific maintenance recommendations, some already accomplished that will, if followed, prevent the recurrence of this particular accident. But maintenance, poorly done, will find a way to bite somewhere else. So, in the aftermath of the crash, Captain Thompson and First Officer Tansky were posthumously awarded the Airline Pilots Association Gold Medal for Heroism, their constant efforts to right the plane in the face of almost certain death were just, like, extraordinary. They're superhuman. And the fact that they were able to control the plane at all was a miracle. Because there was right. a point where they were able to recover it for a little bit. And then everything just broke and it was beyond their control. So, to this day, this crash is the only time in aviation history that that specific award has been given posthumously. Additionally... There is a Ted Tomskin and Bill Tansky scholarship fund. Alaska Airlines was ordered to pay $300 million compensation. Yeah. But that was totally covered by their insurance. So Mm -hmm. they didn't pay anything. Yeah, that's fraud insurance, baby. Yep, that's fraud insurance. And so it's still one of the biggest payouts in American aviation. In, In the memory of the crash, a beam of light was actually projected from the Space Needle in Seattle because that's where Mm -hmm. the vast majority of passengers were going to, including the entire crew. A memorial sundial was dedicated on the Port Huenemi Port H coast of California (laughs) near where the plane crashed. In April of 2001, the John Hay Elementary School in Seattle dedicated a memorial garden to the six school students who died in the crash. None of them were older than eight. A public park in Seattle named Soundview Terrace was renovated in memory of the crash, and they dedicated its playground to six-year-old Rachel Pearson, who died, because that playground was her favorite when she was alive, and she was there so much that local residents knew her as, oh, there's that little girl that's always at this park. Alaska retired the flight number, and uh, at a memorial 20 years after the crash in 2020, the CEO of Alaska Airlines said, quote, I'm extremely sorry. And like, that's not enough. No matter what Alaska does, if it's the same people or not, nothing is ever going to make up for what they've done. Mm -hmm. And I think it's honestly i think they should say things like we are ashamed of what we have done we will never we will never write what we have done wrong and you have to say things like that you can't you have just to say, acknowledge I'm it sorry 
Well, you can't apologize like a bad boyfriend. Yeah, exactly. It's not like you cheated on your wife. You killed 88 people because you wanted to save a buck. Like, it's ridiculous. And um, he probably was also cheating on his wife, if we're being honest. Probably. He's an airline CEO. Sorry about that. That sucked. Like, that's not good enough. There has to be a better way to say it, because what he said was, like, quote, something along the lines of, Alaska Airlines accepts responsibility for the crash. We are extremely sorry. Like, right. that's not enough. That is right. absolutely not enough. Words can never make up for it, but there are better words to say. There are better words to say. Like, what we've done is unforgivable. It is shameful. And, it, like, saying I'm just, ugh. Anyway. I'm yeah. I'm beating a dead horse now. One of the one of the uh, passengers on the plane, she had actually just gotten engaged to her brand new fiance, who was also on the plane. They were flying back from the vacation where they had literally just gotten engaged, mm -hmm. and the 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 woman's father said in an interview later, uh, he was describing. The, his reaction to finding out what Alaska did. He's like a shell of a human now. He's of completely devastated. And he said, quote, what a hard way to die so an airline can make more money. And that just that just sums up the whole thing. Yeah. And that is all I have for Alaska Airlines 261. Normally, I'm here just like, yay, jokes, punching it up. Haha, ha, silly fun, Justin. Shit's heavy, man. <laughs> yes, yes. Like, this one, I felt my cheeks getting hot when I was researching it because I was just getting so mad. Like, the fact that they had countless opportunities, countless opportunities to not let it happen. And not only did they not follow up, on any of the actions they could have taken, they actively did steps to prevent Avoid it, like... safety from happening. Right. They made fraudulent reports. It's almost like they wanted this to happen. It almost seems intentional. It almost seems like there was a meeting where they said, hey, this could kill people. And then they hey. went, actually, I don't care. Let's do it anyway. Yeah. Like They're like, hey, guys, how sadistic are we? And the answer was yes. Yes. The answer was sky's the limit mm -hmm. like it just boggles the mind i don't know how you can be so just laissez-faire with safety and make it to that position of power and the only people that deserved to be on that plane that day <laughs> were the that the alaska executives yeah yes and the, and that's the thing that gets me because at the well, end they... of the day they sat there in their mcmansions hearing about these children that died a horrible death after three minutes of free fall and they just sat there in their mcmansion eating the food that they bought with the money that led to their death looking at their fancy three thousand dollar watches and they i hope that they hate themselves and i hope that they don't sleep and i hope that they all got divorced and i hope that they aged in a way that makes them look like the monsters they are on the inside and i just and then they get in their fancy cars to go drive to to memorials that they don't care about. I have Apple one. Watch yeah. just, just told me that um <laughs> that you need to you need to I simmer. Need to calm down. That's vlogging and exercise for you right now. I have one. Your rant is perfectly valid. I have one clarifying point. Their watches aren't three thousand dollars. 
<laughs> those mother- how much money I make. Those <laughs> motherfuckers are the Rollies are ten to fifty with their salaries. They're probably they're probably dropping on like fifty to maybe hundred grand watches comfortably. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, that is that's all I have. Um I'm gonna go lay down and, as you uh, should. As I should. If you have any flight stories, suggestions, or corrections, send them to maydaymaydaypod at gmail.com. Please be safe and double-check the safety instructions and just be safe out there, okay? You guys are the best. Bye-bye. Toodaloo.